0: Chapter Six, Romans, Chapter Six. We've been plodding through this book a bit, particularly this chapter. But tonight, as we have, I believe, uh, laid down some groundwork, we'll probably move a little bit faster. So hang in there with me, if we can. My objective is tonight to cover verses eight through fourteen, Romans six. Verses 8 through 14. I trust by now that you have at least some basic graphs, some understanding of the idea that Paul has presented in Romans chapter 5. The two representative heads Adam disobeyed and death came into the world, Christ obeyed and life resulted. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. If we only had this particular portion of the book of Romans, We might be led to believe, with Paul making this statement, that in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. We might be led to think that Paul has introduced the idea of universalism, the idea that all are saved. Uh, at, At least he's introduced it at this point, but he has not. The means of being associated with Christ in His headship has already been made clear earlier in the epistle, in Romans, particularly in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. That is, that to be identified with Christ, the only means of doing that is by faith alone, in Christ alone. So what Paul is saying in Romans 5, 12 through 21 is that all of those who are in Adam are spiritually dead. All of those who are in Christ have eternal life. Now, moving on to chapter 6, all the way down to verse 5, if you will. Paul says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 5 states a principle, and Paul will do this through the next few verses. Verse 5 states a principle, and then verses 6 and 7 explain the principle. So, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, this is actually a conditional sentence, but it's assuming it from the viewpoint of reality. So, we could take this as a statement if you would prefer. Since we have been united, with, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We, at the moment of faith, were united with the death of Christ in its salvific significance. And we are now, as a result, in a state of conformity to his death. This is very important for us to understand the command that's going to come up in this passage tonight. We're also united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, which here I take as referring to the physical resurrection of believers with Christ. Being united with him in his resurrection not only ensures that we'll have a resurrection body, like his, but also speaks of the significance of the post-salvation way of life. The New Testament pictures us as having eternal life right now. This is not something that's a future ideal. We have eternal life right now. And if if we could be assured of that, do you see how it might make us live differently today? Eternal life is not something that will be granted us into the future. You have it right now. Now, you won't live on eternally in this body of corruption that we have at the present time. And if we took a poll, especially a private poll, I think all of us would say amen to that. I'd just as soon have the next one, because this body... This body breaks down over time. And I think that's part of the grace of God. For if we were born in the status that we end up, and then get better as life goes on, if the whole process kind of reversed itself, I think a lot of us would be clinging to life toward the end. But I think most of us, as we go through our life, say, you know what, I see the wisdom, I see the grace in having a resurrection body. So because of Christ's resurrection, we are assured a resurrection as well. But it's not just that. It's not just something we look forward to for the future. It's something we should enjoy now. Today, I can live differently than I would have been able to live if I did not have eternal life right now. Knowing that I have eternal life right now, I can live today with confidence, not just into the future. Today I can live with confidence. I can face today, as the hymn says, because he lives. Because he lives now, because I know that I have eternal life, I can face both today and tomorrow. So Paul moves on to say in verse 6, knowing this, as could be considered causal because we know this that our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin so verses 6 and 7 explain what he said in verse 5 the old man that we, and we spoke of this last week and this is a, a, a bit of circling back around for some, for others it's the, the first time you might have heard this The old self that is referred to in verse 6, the old man, is life in Adam as opposed to life in Christ. Our old self picks up this corporate identity that we spoke of just a moment ago in review of Romans chapter 5. It alludes to our identification with Adam and denotes, as John Stott once wrote, "...not a part of me called my old nature." but the whole of me that I was before I was converted." Now the reason I bring this up is from time to time, we'll, and they are very, very good theologians, they consider this old self in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 to be what we would call the old sin nature. and They would say, knowing that our old sin nature was crucified with him. And I don't deny at all the fact of an old sin nature that we carry with us now in this body of corruption. But I do not believe that that's what's being spoken of here. He's he's going back to this uh, this type that he set up in the previous chapter, that the person that we were in Adam has been crucified. It's been executed. That person has, is no no longer positionally exists. That's what he's saying here. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified, and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now he's piling these explanations up. I'm going to to move fairly quickly through them tonight since we covered them last week so we can get to what he wants us to do with this. There's a reason why he's giving us all this theology, but as a result of our crucifixion with Christ, this body of sin, the whole person dominated by sin's power, the person we were in Adam, has been done away with. The Greek term katargeo means to invalidate, to abolish or to put an end to. As a result, Paul says, we need no longer be slaves to sin. We need no longer to be slaves slaves to sin. Remember how Paul's outlining chapter six, seven, and eight. In chapter six, Paul says, I can say no to sin as a believer. I can say no to sin. But then we move to chapter 7 and he teaches us that even though I can say no to sin, <coughs> I don't do it nearly as often as I ought to. Even though I can say no to sin, I seem to say yes to sin all the time. So even though I know that it's possible for me to say no to sin, as I'm a believer, Romans 7, I don't do it as much as I should. And then when we get to Romans 8, he tells us how we can say no to sin, under whose power. Because if we try to put our shoulder into the wind and just do it under the energy or the power that we have in this body, it's never going to happen. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit, who's introduced in Romans chapter 8, we know how we can say no to sin. So again, follow his argument. Chapter 6, I can say no to sin. Chapter 7, even though I want to say no to sin, or I can I don't do it as often as I should. And then chapter 8, this is how you can say no to sin through the relationship you have with the indwelling. Holy Spirit. So positionally we were freed from the grip of sin when we trusted Christ. Keyword: positionally. Experientially we will be freed from the grip of sin when we receive our promotion to heaven. Again, a concept that we studied in the introduction to Romans. There are three aspects of, of our um, sanctification, if you will. One is Positional sanctification. I have already, as a believer in Lord Jesus Christ, I have already been saved from the penalty of sin. That's Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We are saved already from the penalty of sin. That penalty will never be placed back upon us. But then in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about we are currently being saved from the power of sin. We are being delivered. It's a process. And then... The final stage of sanctification, ultimate sanctification, is we will in the future be saved from the very presence of sin. So that's why we say, positionally, we were freed from the grip of sin when we trusted Christ. That's Romans chapter 6. Experientially, we will be free from the grip of sin when we receive our promotion from heaven. Now, Romans chapter 6, verse 8. And the same thing that happened in chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7 Now happens a second time in verses 6, 7, and 8. In verse 6, Paul states a principle. And then in verses, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. In chapter 6, verse 8, Paul states a principle. And then in verses 9 and 10, he explains the principle. So read along with me. These are new verses for us. For if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Statement of the principle. And then verse 9, knowing that, or this could be considered a causal participle, it could be translated, and I think it may be in some of your translations, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So again, principle, and then the explanation of the principle in the next two verses. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 8, if we've died with Christ, that is, as a result of Christ's death for us, we died to sin, we shall also live in fellowship with Him. And not only in eternity, but here and now, we're expected to live in fellowship with Him. We know that such living with Him is possible because He, having died, was Raised from dead, the death, raised from the dead, never to die again. That's the pattern for us. The reason I can have confidence in the day-to-day march toward our departure from this earth is because of Jesus Christ, death, burial and resurrection. If we stopped at the death and burial, we would have a very Sad story, in fact, one of our founding fathers, one of my favorite founding fathers, was a deist he wasn 't a theist, and he certainly wasn 't a christian and that 's Thomas Jefferson, a brilliant mind, if there ever was one, wrote the Declaration of Independence when he was actually very young, I think intimidated some of our other founding fathers and he was a great thinker, but he bought into the the one of the philosophies of his day, which was deism and deism is Uh, can be made more complicated but in in essence a a deist would believe in an infinite personal God but not necessarily an infinite personal God who takes any interest in his creation and Thomas Jefferson because he he was a deist didn't believe in anything supernatural so Thomas Jefferson also um, being a great writer and reader too, read through the gospel material decided to print an edition, his own edition of the gospels And the way that he took out all the supernatural, which takes out quite a bit of the Gospels, and the way he ends his Gospel is tragic, or his text on the Gospels is tragic. He leaves it with the stone being rolled over Christ's tomb. That's it. It's over. My friends, that's not the end of the story. And because it's not the end of the story, we can have confidence when we approach our own death. Knowing that someone has gone into death and has come back never to die again, you know, I have these stories, and I and I frankly I don't want to get into it tonight, but I question the validity of some of them, how somebody you know died on the operating table, goes into heaven, sees a light. Uh, I question some of that, I question a lot of it, but but even those people they go and they come back, and then they die again. Jesus Christ went into death. He conquered death and then comes out of it. And never to die again. He didn't die once he came back. He was ascended up in heaven in view of of many witnesses. That gives me confidence that I know it can be done. And I also know that I am identified with him. And as the Apostle Paul said to Timothy right before he himself was to die, he said, I know whom I have trusted. And I know that he's able. He is able to deliver what I have what I've given over into his guard until the very, that very day. I know in whom I, was, in whom I have trusted. Do you know in whom you have trusted? And is the person that you're trusting powerful enough to deliver you into heaven after we live this life, leave this life? And that's what Paul is bringing up here when he says, if we died with him, we believe we shall also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And because we are identified with him, death is no longer master over us. In verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Without the assurance that Christ's death was a once for all event, in fact, the Greek term that's translated here, once for all in the, the New American Standard, is, is understood to mean once and never again. Christ had to die once, and he never had to die again. That sacrifice was sufficient. The sacrifice of death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient. And it was sufficient for every person who's ever lived. It is efficient only for those who believe again it is sufficient for everyone who has ever lived it is efficient only for those who believe so Christ's death the death that he died the type of death that he died he died to sin now notice the text doesn't say he died for sin it's very specific here he died to sin he didn't have to die for sin because he didn't sin himself he died to sin. It's a, it's a technical distinction Paul's making. I don't think we have to make a, a huge issue out of that tonight. But if I was speaking to a different audience, perhaps overseas, I would, to make sure they understand Christ was not sinful himself. When the text tells us that he became sin for us, it doesn't mean he became sinful for us. That sin was taken off of us. It was placed upon him. There was no volition involved in, in that at all in terms of him using his volition to sin. He used his volition to take our sin upon him. So, without the assurance that Christ's death was a once for all event, we would lack the comfort we need for this life, and there would be only a fragile hope for the future. Can you see why? Well, what if God the Father decided later on, that was nice what he did on Golgotha, but you know, I'm still pretty irritated about that. Now, I believe we're going to require something else. We should all be nervous, because we would never know if we could be assured of our salvation. But since it was a once-for-all event, and Christ does not have to be crucified again, there needs to be no more sacrifice, that if we're identified with him, we're in. We don't have to be concerned with that. We can have assurance. We can have eternal security, or assurance of our eternal security. It was through his death that Jesus conquered death Having done so, he's able to say to John, when John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. That's Revelation chapter 1, <coughs> verse 18. Now very significant is this expression, once more, he died to sin once for all, or once and never again. No second offering is necessary, and to imply such is utter blasphemy. It's an insult to God himself. There are millions of people around the world, millions, who would check a box if they were given a card as to what faith they hold, and it would check the box Christian, that would not understand this principle. Millions re-crucify Jesus Christ every time what they would consider the sacraments are past. This passage says no. We don't do that. The book of Hebrews says no. There were people in the early church that didn't really understand what should we do with temple worship now, particularly I'm talking about Jew, Jewish believers in this case. What did we do? I mean, the temple was still there until AD 70. There were many believers in Jerusalem. How do we participate now? What Well, if the animal sacrifices were a shadow... Christ has already come, do I still participate in animal sacrifices? It was a big issue early in the church. The writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it was, I'd be very careful with anybody who says dogmatically that they know that it was Paul, or that it was Apollos, or or whoever, that's my view, or if it was Barnabas, it's just a guess though, but whoever the human author was, God the Holy Spirit was the divine author, and said, no, you don't do that. You don't understand what the Old Testament sacrificial system was. It was pointing you forward to Christ. Now that he's been crucified, you don't continue with those sacrifices. When the reality has come, the shadow is done away. So, we get to verse 11, and now we see in this verse, the very first imperative has come up in the book of Romans. With the possible exception of Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if we were to take that as a hortatory subjunctive, which could have been, uh, understood as somewhat of an imperative but we did do it, but now we finally get to a command, now this command is not going to shock you, because as an as a expositor of the word, when I give principles having read ahead, I already know what Paul's application to that principle is going to be, and so I've already exhorted you in this direction, but now we finally come to the very first command in the book of Romans from, a, from an overt standpoint let me let me pause here and tell you a little bit about Paul's letters. Paul's letters were generally divided up in, say, half and half. You'd have, say, for example, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are very heavy in theology. And then the last three chapters are heavy in Paul exhorting you to behave in a certain way because of what he's just taught you. Um, Colossians is the same way. It's two and two. Now, that it doesn't mean that when we study the first two chapters that there are no... There are no exhortations to certain behavior. In Romans, the first 11 chapters are heavy in theology, and then chapters 12-16 through are considered to be heavy in application. Now why would we say that? One of the ways that we can see it is when we go through either the English or the Greek text. You can do it in either one. We go through and we see how many commands there are in particular portions of the text. And we may trickle along in the first 12 chapters of Romans, just have a, a couple here and there. Then we get to 12, and boom, there's command after command after command. He just strings them together. But Paul teaches the theology first. And then based upon, based upon what he's taught, assuming we have a decent understanding of it, you've got to have that first. Then he moves on to application of the theology. We were never meant to stop at Romans chapter 11. There's, there are a few more chapters to go after that. We're never meant to stop after Ephesians 3. There are three more chapters. After Colossians 2, we're going to keep going. Because there are chapters that that exhort us to behave in a certain way based upon what it is we claim to believe. To be more basic, we claim to believe in an infinite personal God who loves us, who has revealed himself to us, and wanted to have a relationship with us, so he sent his son to die as a substitute for us. We claim that we believe that, right? I mean, all of us would. We'd better. If you don't, we need to talk. But do we live consistently with that claim on a day by day basis I I don't want to say moment by moment because we'd all have to say no I think a lot of times we don't because if we really truly did believe that an infinite personal God an infinite let me add infinite personal holy God existed that he cares about me that he's my shepherd that he's told me that I'm not going to ever lack for anything at least from his standpoint I might lack for things that I think I need but not from his standpoint why are we worrying why do we have anxiety headaches? You know, why do we have to, you know, go have three or four glasses of wine in the evening to wind down? No, because because we're not living consistently with what we say we believe. The Bible doesn't just stop with theology. If you stop with theology, you're not doing it the way Paul did. So now even though we don't get to the technically speaking the application section of Romans for several more chapters, Paul has added now a his first Imperative In verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, there will be several imperatives that will string together over a few verses now that we'll finish up with tonight. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That's an imperative. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And it's the first command it's the first imperative in Romans, and there will be a, an imperative in the next three verses, eleven, twelve, 12, and 13. This verb means, and its most basic meaning, logizomai, means to consider something to be true. <coughs> consider it to be true. We've, it's been translated variously, it can be translated reckon, but reckon's kind of an older English word that might not mean as much to us as it should. So I want you to to insert the thought, consider this to be true. Now let me give you an illustration. An illustration, let's take uh, gravity. Gravity is a fact whether I consider it to be true or not. Agreed? It's a fact whether I consider it to be true or not. But if I was to tell you, let's let's say I was to tell one of my kids that they were very adventurous, I would say, hey listen, I want you to consider the fact of gravity to be true. It's a great illustration, I'll wait. (laughs) I want you to consider the fact of gravity to be true. Do you think there's any benefit, a potential benefit, to them considering the fact of gravity to be true? It's a fact already. But what about us reckoning that to be true? Us considering it to be true? you think that could save you from any potential problems? Yeah. Yeah, it could. The other day, one of my boys—I won't say which one because I don't want to embarrass him—but he he hit a home run, it wasn't the first one he ever hit. I'm not—I'm not talking about in the, inside the park, over the fence. Well, he hit it into an area that was very, very wooded up near Tomball, and so I, as the dad, was given the task of going and finding the ball. Well, part of the problem was there—it was—it was so heavily wooded. There's a bunch of snakes back there. And all due respect, I'm scared of snakes. I don't like them. A couple of you snake people in here tonight. I should have sent y'all after the ball, but, but. The other barrier was a six foot chain link fence between me and the place, the wooded area where the ball went. So I climbed up to the top of the chain link fence while at the same time that some of the kids on the playing field were poking my son, saying, Look at what your dad's doing out there. You sure he can make that? And I was kind of wondering myself because it's been a long time since I got on the top of a six foot (laughs) chain link fence because having reckoned gravity to be true, I knew that there were consequences if I just jumped down. Well, part of what I did, I got my foot wrapped around a vine that was full of stickers. Had I jumped down, I would have, I don't know what, I'd have ripped my leg off. I don't know what it would it would have been bad, but I didn't jump down. I stayed on top of the fence and kept trying to call my wife over there to come help. And she was saying, no, no, just forget the balls. <laughs> it's not a matter of the balls, it's a matter of me now. But because I believed in the principle of gravity... I didn't just jump down uh, recklessly. I mean, if you're up on a roof, it's probably a good idea to reckon the fact of gravity. I had a friend of mine that was teaching me how to, to fix a lamp one time. And he said, he was an electrician, and he said, are you af- afraid of electricity? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. And he said, well, good, because I wasn't going to tell you how to fix this lamp unless you told me you were afraid of electricity, because it will kill you. So it was, it was to my benefit. To reckon it true that electricity could either help me or hurt me. That gravity is a principle, whether I want to believe it or not, it's still there. Now what Paul's saying here now is, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon it to be true. Consider this to be a true statement. Now you see what he's done. He's given us this principle, which we've studied over about a month and a half, and now he's saying, consider what I've just told you to be a fact, Jack. It's real important to your spiritual life for you to consider this to be true. What has been established in the first ten verses of Romans chapter 6, namely that believers are in principle, in principle, dead to sin and alive to Christ, must become a steadfast conviction, both of our hearts and of our minds. It is true whether we ever reckon it to be true or not. Once you have trusted Christ... These facts are true. We are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. But if we reckon it true, if we consider it to be true, then our behavior might actually be changed. I hope you see the point. It's true in principle, whether we ever appropriate it or not. It's kind of like this saying, that to, to make Christ Lord of your hearts. That can be misunderstood. Christ is Lord. Whether we ever reckon it to be true or not. But the scriptures will tell us that we should also reckon that. We consider that to be true. And you can see how that might have ramifications on how I live. So you have a principle, and then our understanding, reckoning that that principle is true. Admitting it is true in an experiential sense. Okay, I hope that helps. So. Believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ. And it has to become part of my being, a steadfast conviction. We must constantly bear in mind that we are no longer what we used to be. It's a fact, but we need to constantly bear it in mind. Now, how should it be applied? Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Second imperative. Now in this letter, a second overt imperative, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If I have reckoned it true that I've died to sin but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. If I've if I've considered that to be true, then the next thing I should do is to not let sin be the boss over me. The the Greek term actually is one that we would, um, it's, it's related to the Greek term for king. Don't let it be the king over your life. Don't let it have rulership over you. If you understand your position, you shouldn't do that because, because that is totally antithetical to who we are now. We've left that life in Adam. Now we're in Christ. We shouldn't let sin reign in our mortal bodies, that we should obey its lusts. Now this is something, that we only have three minutes to go, so I want you to listen carefully. We'll see if we can get all this finished. I might ask you to indulge me and give me five minutes. that would only be two minutes late. Let's, let's try. Um, although it is true, but don't miss this. I have this in different colors in my notes to emphasize it to you. Although this is true. Although it is true that believers have died to sin positionally. Okay, That is true. This does not mean that sin has ceased to be an opposing force in our lives, a, rea- a reality to be taken into account. Sin remains an issue for the believer. Now, it's not an issue in the same way that it is for the unbeliever. We are no longer under the penalty of sin. But we, scored Romans chapter 7, we still do sin, and those sins must be confessed in order to maintain a relationship with god so just because sin was dealt with on the cross we should not say that sin's no longer an issue in our lives if it if that was a true statement then paul is terribly confused i can't be any more blunt than that if it is a true statement that sin is no longer an issue In our lives, Paul is terribly confused. And we're the ones that need to adjust our thinking rather than Paul. Let me put it this way it could be rightly said after the cross that sin is no longer the issue. Listen to my words carefully sin is no longer the issue issue after the cross. Lewis Berry Chaper said it this way, after the cross, with regard to salvation, we no longer have a sin issue, we have a son issue. Because now it's a choice of whether you're going to accept Jesus Christ and leave your position in Adam or whether you're going to stay in Adam. But sin is not the issue. Once the sacrifice has been made, Christ is the issue. For he, and he alone, is the solution to the sin problem. That's why we say, Christ is the issue. But sin remains an issue. In the process of doing systematic theology, we need to be careful not to forget the text of Scripture itself. Paul certainly considers sin to be an issue as is evident throughout the book of Romans, and in his other letters as well. He wouldn't have mentioned it. He wouldn't be saying things like, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, if it was not an issue at all. He's wasting his time. So we need to take our systematic theology from the text. We don't start with our systematic theology and then make the text fit that, although experientially that's what happens a lot. We ought not to... Let's move on in in verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now here we have another, two, actually two more commands, two more imperatives. So we had none for the first six chapters, uh, ten verses, and now we've had, well actually four, technically speaking, over the, the next three verses. Don't present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. What Paul's saying is this. Do not continue to put your bodily parts at the disposal of sin as weapons of wickedness. Now what are your bodily parts? Your tongue, your arms, your hands. In the Old Testament it says that the Lord hates feet that run swiftly into trouble or hands that shed innocent blood or the tongue that speaks wickedly. Paul is using this kind of analogy. He's saying stop doing this. And instead, right now, completely and decisively, put yourselves at God's disposal. Offer yourselves to Him. Now, you have a body that, that, that has different functions available to it. You have a choice right now. You can either make this body available to sin, to, to who you were in Adam, and that can be a weapon or an instrument of unrighteousness. And Paul says, don't do that. Or you can take this same body with its same functions, the same mouth, and you can use it, you can turn it over to God to use for righteousness. Now you see, Paul has laid down this theology. That's why we spent the time, and that's why he did too, telling you about these two representative headships, and that this is not you anymore. So why would you want to act like this is you? He wants you to turn this body over to God For service. And he'll make this point again when he gets to the application section in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I want you to note, please, because there's great discussion on this in in theological circles in today's world, this is not automatic. There are some that believe it is. There are some that believe that once you're saved, you will automatically turn your body over to God to use we call that lordship salvation or some variation of that and that's not consistent with what Paul's saying here he's commanding it anyone have to command something he's automatic so please note that well Paul under the ministry of the holy spirit commands us to do this so we can't say that it will happen automatically the whole includes the parts when individuals offer themselves to god their bodily parts constitute a portion of that offering the result is that weapons of righteousness replace weapons of wickedness. And now if you'll indulge me, just one last uh, phrase. In verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are under law, not under grace. Law is able to do many things. We've studied it earlier in this epistle, so I'll say this quickly. It commands us, it rebukes us, it condemns us, it restrains us. It even points away from itself to another. and, and being it, it demonstrates to us that we have a need for salvation. And that's what the law does. Dr. Wolverd says it this way, and I'll close with this. After showing in chapter 6 that we were delivered from the power of indwelling sin by our union with Christ in His death and resurrection, Paul points out clearly that we are delivered from the law, not only through the death of Christ, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, he makes the statement, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. Oh, God forbid. Both references are to nomos without the article, and include not only the Mosaic law, but any law system. And I know I'm introducing a pretty serious topic right at the end. We'll swing back and catch some of this next time. But hang in there with me, and you can be thinking about it for the next week. Paul doesn't argue this question. He simply states the simple fact. He goes on in this chapter to point out that we are not under law because we are under a new master, which is Christ himself. Now, Dr. Walbert is not saying that we are lawless in this dispensation or that the Mosaic law was inherently bad. He's not saying that. Paul will make sure we understand that in the next chapter. But he is speaking of the difference between the law which points us to the Savior. And grace, which is our function in life after we are saved. It doesn't mean that we don't have rules and regulations. But there's a whole different function now within this. Because of this, let us be faithful children for the glory of God. And not unfaithful children who have returned to function under a master who no longer has authority over us. Thank you for your indulgence with these few extra minutes. Father, we are appreciative of the opportunity that you've afforded us tonight to study this passage. And I do pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will give us a special measure of insight and wisdom as we ponder it, as we consider it, and as we proceed through this great and wonderful chapter of your word. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.